All right, welcome to the feedback loop with Sino Global Capital. I'm Matthew Graham, CEO of Sino, and I'm so excited for this episode because we're talking with Sam Tribuco. He's a hotshot quant trader at Alameda, and we have some really astonishingly good crowdsourced questions. So I think this is going to be a really special episode. Sam, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm excited too. Okay, so Sam, I, I, I saw that you said sports were too hard, so I did math instead on your Twitter background. Can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about your story? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so growing up, uh, the, the sports thing is specifically sort of in reference to my uh, father, who was uh, like a three-sport captain growing up, and he mm. was very disappointed to, uh, to have given birth to a math nerd who can't, <laughs> who can't throw a ball or anything like that. Um, so growing up, I did a lot of math competitions. Um, mm. Like, uh, if you're familiar with like the American math competitions, then you'll mm -hmm. know names like USMO, like the, like things like that. Went to math camps uh, throughout, like like middle and high school. Uh, I ended up going to MIT uh, for mm. uh, to study math and computer science. Um, yeah, after that, like I studied uh, like a fairly traditional course of study there. Um, realized I didn't want to go into academia. Uh, so I did a trade, uh, and uh, at MIT, there's sort of a culture of uh, if you don't go into academia as a math person, you'll like often just try a trading internship or a finance internship or something. Yes. Uh, which, I, which I did uh, junior summer at uh, Susquehanna International Group or SIG, uh, which is a big quant trading firm in the U.S. Um, I really liked that. Uh, there was a, it really fit my, uh, fit into my interests, both uh, like the math ones and also I play, I have also always played a lot of uh, strategic games. Um, uh, which SIG uses poker to teach people trading. Uh, they're, uh, which does, like, they have a lot of analogs and on some level trading is just playing a game all day. Uh, so it sort of marries uh, two of the things that I've always really liked, which are math and gaming. Um, and yeah, I uh, went back to SIG full time after graduating. I uh, worked there for a couple years. Uh, eventually, uh, I was on where I was on like a a bond ETF desk, and I also worked on, uh, uh, sort of ironically on their sports betting desk for a bit. What was the um, first desk? I didn't catch that. Uh, it's a bond ETF arbitrage oh, bond desk. ETF desk. Okay, great. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, left in 2017 to work on some non-trading stuff for a bit, uh, during which time uh, I started trading crypto in my PA uh, and realized fairly fast that it was just impossible, that it wasn't correct to just do work on it full time. Uh, it was like, just like fairly easy uh, to do some basic quantitative strategies that just like worked sort of instantly. Um, did that for a bit. And then, uh, so Sam, the founder of Alameda, uh, I mentioned I went to math camps in high school. I was just I gonna ask, cause he told me previously, at one point he mentioned that he went to math camps uh, as a kid, 14, 15, something like that. So you know him for, from, from math camp as a kid, I think. Yes, uh, we went to the same math camp uh, in uh, the summer of around my junior year. Uh, and then we also both went to MIT. Um, so sure. I, yeah, so I knew him. And, and he went to Jane Street, you went to SIG, which yep. uh, for, for people that might not know, those are two, Susquehanna and Jane Street are two of the utmost elite uh, trading firms for traditional, so-called traditional finance, Wall Street trading, trading firms. Those are uh, at a minimum best of breed. Uh, yeah, uh, Jane Street's uh, technically an offshoot of SIG actually. Um, oh, I didn't know that part. Okay. Yeah, uh, I was founded by some ex-SIG traders uh, um, it was a long time ago, so it sort of doesn't matter. <laughs> but... Okay. So, uh, tell me more about sports betting at SIG. What was that like? It's too good to pass yeah. up. I didn't know that about you. So what I did, I did not know that SIG had a sports betting desk, first of all, which I'm not surprised. They do uh, a lot of um, idiosyncratic uh, trading. Uh, uh, they, they just alpha wherever it is. But that sounds super interesting immediately that you did sports betting uh, at SIG. Are you... Um, I know that you, you, you come from a sports family. You yourself uh, are not a sports first guy, um, which I, I kind of relate to because it took me years to find a sport I was good at. I was terrible at baseball. I had to find wrestling. But are, are you like a sports junkie? Was that a prerequisite to be on their sports betting desk or 
Tell us yeah, more about would, this. You would think so. Uh, but, uh, I wouldn't yeah, think so, actually, but I want to hear you tell us about it. <laughs> Some The other traders at SIG sort of would, would have thought so. They were uh, People were sort of annoyed that, uh, I was, uh, that I was put on that desk, actually, because, yeah, I really don't care about sports at all. Um, I had to, like, I was building a, a model for American football, uh, mm-hmm. and I sort of had to look up a bunch of rules for American football in order to do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, they started the sports betting desk uh, largely uh, just because the like the European uh, mm-hmm. like sports betting markets have gotten much more popular uh, in mm. recent years. Um, like especially for the more Eurocentric sports, uh, right. popular like tennis, soccer, things like that. Um, but it's getting more popular for American stuff too. Uh, and the and Sig CEO uh, sort of had always wanted to do something like this and. Uh, just commissioned a small desk to work on it. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to move to Ireland actually in order to hmm. to work on the desk, and uh, left sort of right before I was supposed to do that. <laughs> so, how inefficient is sports betting? I I am not at all a gambler. Yeah. The last time I bet on sports was in high school, and I I do remember that I got really into like the the Sagarin ratings, Jeff Sagarin ratings. And the ELO chests, you know, there, there are, it was, it was uh, these more quantitative approaches for sports, uh, at least in terms of an open source way that you could access that information. Uh, it was kind of just coming to fruition. I, I remember I did quite well. I won like a, a couple national competitions and stuff like that, but I was just using like very basic open source stuff. Um, how... How competitive is uh, sports betting now? How yeah. far do you have to go to get edge? Right. Uh, so it sort of depends on the sport. Uh, so for the for the Eurocentric sports, I think uh, they've had a lot of volume for quite a while at this point, yeah. like like five years maybe. Uh, and so those have gotten more competitive insofar as uh, more uh, like more smart people uh, who have a lot of money to throw around have decided it was worth it to build good models for them. Um, yeah, so my understanding is that it's fairly hard to uh, gain edge uh, in modeling soccer. Uh, you have to have really fast data, uh, which various companies do sell, uh, but you have to have like very fast data and a fair, decently sophisticated model, I think, to have, uh, to have reasonable edge at it. Um, I think s- something similar for tennis, though I'm less sure about that. Uh, and I know that some of the American sports uh, that are just sort of just gaining popularity uh, and a ton of volume in the sports market uh, are a lot, a lot less efficient now, and it's, it's a mm-hmm. decent amount easier. So it depends on uh, the the uh, breadth and depth of the data that you have available to you, but then uh, of course the sophistication of the model that you're uh, that you're building out uh, yes. certainly makes sense. Um, so I, I I do think it's interesting to unpack that though to be someone that doesn't know or or even care a lot about sports and is on a sports betting desk Mm -hmm. that's that fully makes sense to me in a way because i believe that there are a lot of uh, trading is trading i believe that there's 80 percent carryover i believe that you could take uh, a world-class uh trader on the sports betting desk at sig the best trader and they would be at least an above average trader if they were world-class at the first one trading almost anything i'm not sure if that's something you would agree with or not but um, maybe, maybe you can comment. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it's uh, basically, uh, it's just you're given a set of rules uh, and like a situation in which to try to maximize uh, how much money you make given those rules. Uh, and it sort of doesn't matter what the rules are. Uh, like, it's not like I was especially passionate about like trading bond ETFs either. Like I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't exactly know what they were uh, before, yeah. before I joined the desk. Uh, but it's just a game that I learned the rules to uh, and sort of got good at. Uh, same, same is true for crypto trading. Um, yeah, uh, it's... Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, if you take a complicated person who's strategic and can learn, yeah. learn how to play games, that doesn't really matter what the games are. So talking about games, and you, you mentioned before that there were uh, some games. I know you love crossword puzzles, and I, I believe... I don't... I, I don't I forget the name of the game. It's a game you and Sam both like that has a lot of analogs to trading. Can you tell me Magic more about 
Magic the Gathering. Okay, so is it is it that there are a lot of moves in the game that uh, involve assessing uh, uh, expected value, or what is it about some of these games um, that that lends itself so much to developing trading chops? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would say the games that have the most carryover to trading are ones which involve making a lot of uh, decisions under uncertainty uh, and like trying to like estimate probabilities of various events and uh, optimize your strategy uh, based on your understanding of those probabilities. Uh, so for instance, uh, one that a lot of people will uh, like uh, be able to understand, I think, is poker. Um, sure. Yeah, so in poker, uh, you, uh, you have some private information, which is like the cards in your hand. Uh, and there's also a bunch of uh, uh, public information, uh, which is like the cards that are out uh, for, uh, like that everyone can see. Um, and you basically are like every uh, every time you make an action, like a bet or uh, or raising someone or folding or anything like that, uh, you're making a decision uh, that has to be based on some of your private information and your public information. Uh, and uh, in particular, you have you don't know everyone else's private information, uh, and you also don't know which cards are coming next. Uh, so you have to try to make the best decision given those things. Um, and uh, yeah, so the. Like, so someone who's getting good at poker uh, will, uh, will tend to just develop uh, A, strong math skills, uh, B, strong fast thinking skills uh, in, uh, in applying those math skills, uh, and C, uh, an ability to think about expected value and risk uh, in a fairly natural way. Uh, and those are uh, all things that are super important to trading. Um, yeah, so like when you're trading, you have like your private information, which is your own models and like the data that you're taking in. Uh, there's... Uh, but there's also a ton of uh, other people's private information that you do not have. Uh, you don't know what trades other people are, are about to make. Uh, and, you, and there's always going to be some information that some people like just know faster than others. Uh, like for instance, uh, if you hear about the OKX withdrawal thing uh, fa hmm. faster than other people, yeah. uh, then you can, make, you can make better decisions than them. Uh, if you, and if, the, if say I know about that first, I might buy, o like, I might buy OKB, which is OKX's token. And someone else might see that happening and be like, oh, like, why is this going up? Mm. Uh, have to try and make a decision given that. It's the same thing that happens in poker when, uh, when I make what might look like a weird raise. Uh, maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's like sort of crazy for me to do that. But maybe I do have like a great hand uh, and you have to try to assess the probability of that versus the probability that I'm doing something uninformed. Um, so thinking more about the kind of person that becomes a world-class trader. What's the prototype? Do you want MIT best of class? Do you want uh, someone who dropped out of high school and they're the top Magic the Gathering player in the world? Do you want someone who has both of those attributes? What does it look like? To, to, to put a finer point on that, if that was literally a candidate for Alameda, uh, high school dropout who was the top crossword puzzle player uh, a person or Magic the Gathering person in the world, is that, is that a potential hire? Right. Um, yeah, so I would say that uh, on some level, either uh, could, uh, could end up as a great trader. Um, the key things that uh, you, the key skills that you need uh, actually sort of tend to be really hard to assess, uh, like in a, in a hiring process or whatever, just by talking to someone, uh, because uh, really the way that I think the best way to learn that someone is a good trader is to like have them do it for a month and watch. Uh, and but you don't have an internship program, right? Uh, yeah. So the <laughs> yeah. So the tricky. So it's it's like fairly difficult to to hire good people for this. Uh, like the skills you need are like uh, like not folding under under pressure, uh, being able to think really fast in high in high stress situations, uh, and like sort of things like that. Uh, and like obvious, and all the other things I said before too, but it's important that they not cr like sort of crumble when you're under pressure. Uh, and it's like, and the pressure that we're talking about is like, oh, like the decisions I'm making have like seven figure swings in RPL. Mm. Uh, and it's just really hard to, uh, to, to test someone on that without just having them sort of do it. Uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, the, the ty types of people we hire, uh, yeah, we filter for uh, like either of the sorts of backgrounds that you said. Uh, but sort of indirectly uh, in that mm. we tend to only hire people who have quant trading backgrounds already. Uh, I see. Okay. And so yeah, they so already we, went through that process once before where they said, uh, is this person either a top poker player or a top math uh, student at MIT or both? 
And, and so they already went through that process, have a couple years of experience, and now they're in your queue. Right. Yeah. So, we'll, yeah. Like, yeah. so we'll hire people who, like, in the past have had either of those backgrounds, but, like, that another quant trading firm has already sort of vetted. <laughs> Understood. Okay. All right. Um, so um, we, we have so many questions here from the Twitter thread where, we, where, uh, where you talked about all the cool things uh, that go on at Alameda and things you'd love to talk about. So yeah. um, one thing that people were asking about is the extent to which Alameda trades are delta, delta neutral versus um, doing short and medium term directional bets. What does that mix look like and how has it changed over time? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so I, I would say it's, uh, I'll f first I'll discuss uh, how it, what, what it used to be uh, and like mm -hmm. sort of how it's changed over time and then I'll discuss what it's like now. Uh, so I would say that uh, like a few years ago, uh, back when I first joined uh, Alameda, mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically everything we were doing was, was almost completely delta neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, like most of the trades we were putting on were uh, spreads between two products that were quite right. similar to each other. Uh, like, the, like, back, uh, like back in the day, uh, like for instance, the like OKX quarterly uh, premium mm -hmm. to spot uh, was super volatile. Uh, so it might uh, it might go from being like cheap by a percent to uh, rich by a percent uh, versus right. spot uh, like over the course of like a day or two, uh, like fairly routinely actually. It was kind of crazy, uh, and so some of the best trading you could do was just putting on was just buying the futures and and, and shorting spot, uh, and then waiting for it, the premium to flip and then just trading out of that and just sort of doing that over and over again. Uh, and you could you can do this in like basically a totally delta neutral way. Right. Uh, and yeah, so for a lot for a while, that sort of thing was just always the best use of capital. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so like the, the general way in which we decide what strategies to 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 do are like we have some capital base, uh, and uh, every bet we put on uses up some of that capital base. And so like we sort of rank possible trades based right. on how uh, how how much they're going to make and how much capital they take up. Um, and for a while, the, like those sorts of things were just always the best thing to do. Uh, over time, uh, futures premia have gotten a lot more efficient uh, and a lot, like, a lot less volatile. Uh, and so it tends to be a lot rarer that it's correct to put on like a futures versus spot spread and hold it. Uh, at, least, uh, at least that's gotten a lot less, uh, like, it's gotten a less, lot less true that that's the most profitable thing to do, uh, given what our capital base is. Right. Uh, because uh, before you'd have to hold it for like two days. Uh, now you have to hold it generally until expiration in order to realize these spreads, uh, and that tends to be like like only be worth like five or f like five or six bips per day or something like that, right. which we can tend to, tend to do better with uh, them. Um, so the market so has I, become significantly more efficient uh, over time, even in, in, regard, a, in the yeah. last couple of years. Yeah, in that regard for sure. Um, so I would say that a lot more of our trading, I mean, we've we've always done this too, but a lot more of our trading now. Uh, is uh, like so like for instance when the market moves uh, there tend to be really short-term uh, really short-term inefficiencies that arise uh, just like if one bitcoin market is leading another one by half a second uh, then mm -hmm. you might be able to like, quickly put like uh, sell the one that's lagging and buy the one that's leading or something um, and sometimes you have and or sometimes we also might uh, have like a, a bunch of historical data that indicate oh this sort of bitcoin move uh, tends to revert sixty percent of the time uh, within half an hour, uh, and so like, what if we detect a Bitcoin move like that? Uh, then we might uh, like put on a like we might just like buy a bunch of Bitcoin uh, if it goes down and wait half an hour, uh, and on average that will make money. Um, and I'd say that uh, that sort of thing uh, typifies more of the trading that we're doing these days. Uh, half an hour might be a little long on average for the time scale it, uh, that it takes, uh, but it's not a, not atypical at all. Uh, but yeah, so like the general strategy of like, oh, like we have some data that indicate, uh, some, like some coin is going to move some direction, uh, it like over the next minute or half hour or something like that. Uh, we do a lot of that now. Um, so you do a lot of relative ARB, Paris trading, things like that. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we do. Right. And, and what about, uh, pure directional such as we're gonna, we're gonna, we, we think DeFi is getting too frothy. We're gonna, we're gonna smash DeFi. Right. Um, I wouldn't say that's something that we tend to do. Um, 
we might uh, really idiosyncratically, uh, we might have a directional lean like that uh, over somewhat longer time scales. Um, like for instance, uh, uh, like during the like the past month or two uh, with the saga over the OKX withdrawals, mm. uh, we've at various points felt like we had uh, we had a better understanding of the uh, like a pretty good understanding of the situation, mm -hmm. uh, at such that we could make good OKB bets, um, and that we would expect to sort of uh, be realized over like maybe the course of weeks or something. Mm. Um, so like really idiosyncratically, we'll do something like that. Um, so is that I, too recent that it's too sensitive to talk about, or can we unpack that OKB a little bit? Um, yeah, I, I it's, we can skip it. <laughs> yeah, I feel more comfortable discussing it after. Absolutely, it's no problem. Oh, it's still the trade's still on, no problem. But so okay, yeah. so in Liar's oh, I, Poker, have you read Liar's Poker? So there's a famous scene where they talk, and I I haven't read it in years, but there's a scene where they talk about Chernobyl hits and what do you do, and you got to stay a step ahead. And so first people are just shorting everything, but then they're a step ahead. And so they're going long. I think it was potatoes for God's sakes. But at any rate, you have these idiosyncratic situations. Um, maybe we can talk, are there ones that we have are, are far enough back where we can talk about them, where it's a, a XYZ weird situation suddenly happens, or we could talk about March 12th and how you handled that. I think it'd be uh, super cool to go through some of those. Sure. Um, we could talk about the election, actually. Uh, that's fairly oh, yeah, recent. Oh, yeah, okay. About it. Um, Let me pull up. You have on Twitter, you have a thread about that. Let me pull this up. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the election. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, so I, uh, I led uh, Alameda's modeling of the election, actually. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, like I get a really high-level overview of the sort of things we did during the election. Uh, so we set up uh, like data feeds uh, for uh, a bunch for like to ingest mm -hmm. uh, the, like the uh, the voting data as it was released by various precincts right. uh, and uh, built some model to based on like the correlations of various counties to each other uh, from uh, both 20 from like things like 2016 results okay. uh, like Senate uh, how polls have shifted over uh, over various time periods. Uh, and that can sort of lead you to uh, to build a model of how different states are, how different counties are going to be correlated to each other, okay. uh, in particular how the polling errors will be correlated to each other, because uh, we knew uh, what the like you can look up the what polling uh, is uh, in uh, on various precinct levels uh, right. or in some state levels. And where uh, where but, would you look something like that up? I'm, I'm, I'm fully believe that's available. Do you, do you have to pay for that data or at the, at the precinct level, I mean, do you, do you end up having to pay for that data or how does one look that up? Uh, sure, so on the precinct level, it's really inconsistent. Um, you can, uh, like various uh, like polling companies release public information. Uh, 538 actually sort of uh, uh, has a page that lists a bunch of these. Uh, so it's going to 538's poll page is a, a, decently, a decent place to start. Um, uh, but yeah, so like, so given this polling data, uh, uh, as actual results start coming in, uh, we uh, like we can see what the error was uh, in the polling data, or at least start to make a guess at it, uh, because right. sometimes you'll get uh, incomplete results. Um, and so, like for instance, uh, if we notice that uh, uh, like all like Trump is doing a lot better uh, in uh, areas uh, in like uh, rural areas dominated by by uh, non-white people. Mm -hmm. uh, we might also be able to guess, oh, like the polling error in other counties that are like that right. uh, might also like, will like, is likely going to be in, in the same direction. Okay. Um, that certainly yeah, so, like, makes sense. Yeah. And so like we just uh, got a bunch of, uh, took a bunch of uh, characteristics of various counties uh, so that we could compare them to each other. And then as uh, like the first, the first county results started coming in, we would just uh, like construct what, what we thought the actual, like the actual results were going to be. Okay. Um, yeah, so, uh, so like using a model like that uh, actually does uh, give you a de pretty a decent edge uh, over the market uh, when you're uh, go when you're trying to uh, predict who's going to win. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so this is useful both in trying to trade like the actual like FTX had contracts. Uh, yes. Uh, for Trump and Biden, uh, so it's useful when you're trying to trade uh, those uh, directly. Uh, but uh, so, for instance, uh, the market was decently sure uh, going into the election. Uh, that Biden would be positive for the market at least short term, uh, like like for like spoos or whatever, or like the S and P five hundred, any markets like that. Right. Uh, and 
Which it was, ultimately. Yeah, which it was. Uh, Uh And so if you're like set up to be able to trade on a market like that, uh, then like knowing that, like uh, knowing that either Biden or Trump is like doing better or worse than expected, uh, like can actually just give you an like an like an hour or two uh, mm-hmm. potentially edge uh, in trading those markets. Uh, Bitcoin even just has a like ha- has historically had a beta to uh, to the S and P five hundred, especially uh, during uh, during times when uh, when the S and P five hundred is moving a lot uh, because of some like fundamental reason. Um, so right. for instance. Like Bitcoin had a huge beta to uh, to the S and P five hundred, uh, like when it was moving from COVID, um, mm, and, yes. and like from like from so every basically every time there's like fundamental news that moves the market a ton, Bitcoin will tend to follow, and right. that's exactly what happened here as well. Um, uh, so knowing that like knowing that Trump was doing better, uh, uh, like uh, became an opportunity to like sell Bitcoin, for instance, and then right. realizing he was actually going to win. Uh, or he was actually like like quite likely to lose uh, in the electoral college at least uh, uh, meant that it was like uh, it became quite profitable to buy it uh, and like having a strong model for this just gives you a t- like a huge edge uh, and uh, like can give you just hours over the over the competition. So uh, when you talk about trading the election, so far you've been talking mostly about uh, trading Bitcoin or even the S and P five hundred off of the election, but there is a Chinese firewall, as as the term is the term between uh, Alameda and FTX. So uh, the presidential contracts on FTX are a fair game for Alameda because they uh, are treated uh, as a as a neutral um, uh, neutral party when they trade on FTX. So do, so how? Uh, how did you, uh, or how would it have made sense to trade the Trump contracts on FTX? We could even do uh, it as a hypothetical, how you would have played that. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, like, so given this model, uh, like we are able to sort of construct some actual probability for uh, right. the, the chance that Trump's going to win uh, at any given point. Uh, and like if we ever at any point just strongly disagree with the market, uh, then we can uh, like put on like of like various size positions depending on how confident we are. Um, and yeah, so at, at, at like a bunch of points, uh, we did disagree with the market. Uh, at some points, we uh, like uh, like for what it's worth, it is true that early results for Trump were co- like quite strong uh, in a fairly surprising way, uh, especially given uh, mm-hmm. the the end result. Uh, like for instance, uh, there's a county in uh, like the Miami County in Florida uh, was a like a like a hugely Dade? Uh, was it Miami Dade? Uh, yeah, Miami Dade. Yeah, yeah, hugely outlying result for Trump, uh, and uh, that act- and uh, like anyone uh, like modeling it would would in fact uh, update his results up quite a bit or his mm-hmm. probability of winning up quite a bit, uh, and um, yeah, so like at points like that, uh, we might uh, believe that the market is undervaluing Trump, uh, and then uh, like later uh, as more results come in. Uh, and it sort of becomes clear that there's a ton of uh, a ton of early results that have not been released uh, that are likely right. to skew heavily for Biden. Uh, we think, like for instance, we understood that before the market did. Uh, and uh, so, once you understand that, uh, you might start believing that uh, Trump is overvalued uh, in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime you believe that Trump is either over or undervalued, uh, that becomes a chance to to make trades against people. Um, and, so yeah. it, it seems to me that most of that is just a red shift story, which we knew going into the election. So uh, there's, sure. there's the thesis that, um, uh, that uh, I, I think it's called red shift, right? So it's the thesis that Democrats were overwhelmingly um, uh, casting absentee ballots relative to Republicans. It was just a massive skew. And so likely the early returns were likely uh, that it was, it was uh, pretty well understood that there's a high probability of early returns coming in on, uh, very favorable to Trump versus, versus later returns, right? So it seems to me that in, maybe it's just that I'm looking in retrospect, um, but, it, but it was really a redshift story and that uh, the market freaked out a little bit when really we were just seeing the red shift that we had known going into the day. Is that something? Yeah, totally. um, yeah, I would say that uh, the, the, uh, the market, uh, 
we didn't really realize this was going to happen going in, but I would say the market was really trading around uh, numbers that had been released uh, in like a, a, in a fairly extreme way, actually. Right, uh, exactly. As, yeah. So it was overreacting to something that we actually knew was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, uh, sure. Like, like uh, of course, it, it should be said that we probably, I mean, Biden's up by 6 million votes now, I think. But of course, it should be said that we expected him probably to be a little stronger. There were a number of things we expected differently, right? We expected the Biden coattails to be stronger. Uh, so the, uh, the House uh, election mapped out differently. You know, there were things different, but the redshift, like we talked about that going in and then it happened. And what we saw was a disconnect between uh, the professionals like Nate Silver uh, and what they had anticipated would, would happen and people evaluating data prematurely and, and the Trump contract going haywire. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if you would agree with that or not, but it seems to me like that's a, a major part of the story of what happened. I think that's the gist. Uh, yeah, as an extreme example of, some, of, uh, of this effect. Uh, so uh, as, um, like in the, as the days went on, uh, like it, the uncertainty sort of started going away uh, and like at various points, like there were like a few states left to count. Uh, yeah. And uh, there was a point where once Pennsylvania uh, was, was uh, called, it was going to be callable mm -hmm. for Biden, that Biden had won. Uh, yeah. And uh, given the votes, like it was, uh, Pennsylvania was really forthcoming about which counties had votes left. Uh, and it okay. turned, like, at, and, uh, toward the end, it was just like, they were, like everyone knew that all the votes left uh, were in uh, Philadelphia. Right, uh, which, which had is been very pro-Biden. It's urban. Yeah. We, we, it's, we know Philadelphia is going to be hugely pro-Biden. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we knew that like all the votes left were in Philadelphia almost, um, yeah. and uh, Biden only needed to to uh, like make up like some smallish number of votes relative to how many mm -hmm. were left, and it was just like a hundred percent that Biden was going to like right. if, uh, any uh, anyone modeling this or like think, thinking about this uh, in the correct ways, uh, just like literally a hundred percent knew Biden was sure. going to win. Clean up, uh, and, could clean up. And yeah, and the second that uh, that the vote count that had been actually released at. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, for Biden, the market moved like five percent, yeah. uh, which just which just tells you that the market is very inefficient. Uh, is, the market is just reading how many votes yeah. have been released and sort of has no opinion about the ones that have not been released. Uh, which, sure. yeah, a fairly big leak. <laughs> so to me, that's uh, an example of a, a market that's still not mature. It's it's still a yeah. highly inefficient market. Yeah, um, and and I think we have another example, right? Because there's this Trump Feb contract, and I just pulled it up. And the Trump Feb contract is at 0.157. So that's a 15.7% chance that Trump is somehow going to be president of the United States after, when is it, January 7th? Look, Feb 1, he's going to be president, 15.7%. So that's, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible to me. That, that's a bet that democracy... I mean, look, I don't want to get into politics, but to me, that's a bet that democracy, there's a 15.7% bet that democracy will crumble in the United States between now and, you know, sometime in January. Yeah, that is what the market is saying, yes. <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, how would, how would you view that? Whether you trade it or not, how would you, would you view that as mostly free money or how would you view that? Right, um. Yeah, I would say that. So I, I won't speak to uh, what Alameda's fares for this are or like what. Oh, well sorry. Alameda's it's an open. Maybe we maybe it's an unfair question because it's an open. Uh, it's still maybe we, we can skip it. We oh, can skip I mean, this I, question. Like, yeah. So I won't say what our fares are or like yeah. what, whether I think it's too high or too low or anything like that. Uh, I will just say that uh, uh, one thing that I've seen uh, on like on social media uh, is a lot mm -hmm. of certainty about what this should be worth. Uh, like, uh, I'd say that like a, 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 like a majority of people believe that Trump, like it's either worth something like zero or something like 100. Uh, and well, I would say two to four. So yeah, I so. almost always think the fat, I mean, look, I'm a big Talib guy where I, I think those fat tails are almost always underpriced. But 15.7 uh -huh. is nuts to me. It's not sure. zero. It's like three or four. And anything beyond that, I would say that's just money you can pick up and take. 
Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, I won't say what I think it's worth, but I do Sorry, think we can, we can keep going. We can skip this. <laughs> it makes sense to me that this is a popular contract because of how strongly uh, people agree about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure thing. So, uh, yeah. Any, any questions that, uh, I, I get excited about some of these topics. So I, I, I forgot that it's an open trade and you can't comment. Oh, no, so all, please all please excuse uh, my uh, enthusiasm. Oh no, I'm pretty comfortable uh, <laughs> on it like that. So. Okay. Um, so I, I know that some people want to know about March 12th and we were just talking about fat tails. Is that one we can talk about more? Oh yeah, of course. That must've been, well, you, I mean, we all know it was insane. Tell us how insane it was. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, incidentally, uh, on March 12th, uh, I hadn't taken a day off in a really long time. Uh, and that was go like, I was off that day uh, or I was supposed to be off that day. Uh, yeah. and, uh, Supposed yes, to I sort of, yeah, I woke up and sort of looked at my phone and I was like fairly confident that I was wrong about mm. what the digit of Bitcoin's price was. <laughs> it was so like, you look at your phone and you're like, something's, your first yeah. instinct is something's fucking wrong with my phone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're all, we're all, nobody is a robot. So even the best trader in the world, they might have a, a tenth of a second where they're looking, they're like something, you know, my phone's broken or something, thinking something irrational like that. So that's, yeah. Uh, human, I, right? I course corrected because I saw how many missed calls I had. <laughs> oh, how many, do you remember how many, I mean, was it like 17 missed calls or what was it? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I, I woke up from a, from one of the phone calls. I'm pretty yeah. bad at, uh, at waking up to phone calls. And so oh, like, it okay. was, I think I'd been, I'd been tried like seven or eight times. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so it was quite a bit, it was, uh, it was extremely crazy. Um, uh, like, pri like, uh, I mentioned before that uh, it's rare for uh, these future spreads to be especially volatile, uh, but on March 12th, they certainly were. Uh, mm. Like the spreads between contracts that are like basically identical uh, were like swinging around by percents and percents. Uh, and if you had capital in the right places, it meant yeah. that it was possible to like just be trading in and out of these things. Uh, yeah, there's on, potentially like, you could be making a fortune, but also potentially you could shutter the firm. <laughs> and I think yeah. there were a number of firms that did get closed yeah. because so of it, March 12th. Yeah, I mean, so it's worth noting that like when yeah. you put on a spread like that, uh, it's uh, in like in traditional finance, uh, this wouldn't be like, or like it wouldn't really be possible, but supposing that it were, uh, it wouldn't be a huge like risk in particular uh, because uh, with prime brokerage firms, mm -hmm. uh, you can sort of abstract away uh, all of your like, like margin considerations and like all of your like capital risk because if you just have a bunch of money with these prime brokerages, uh, they'll sort mm -hmm. of handle it. Uh, with in crypto, uh, if I want to put on a spread between two two contracts that exist uh, on mm -hmm. different platforms, I have to have capital on both. Uh, and right. if if the price moves enough, one of them is going to get liquidated. Uh, and right. uh, like any and like many reasonable amounts of leverage uh, on March twelfth were just causing people to get liquidated on one of their positions. Mm. Uh, and it's like the prices were moving, like, like Bitcoin fell like, like, like a crazy amount, uh, especially, so at like, <laughs> especially at like the very lowest point. Um, mm. Yeah, so, tr even tr so like even though these, uh, these opportunities existed, uh, it was like fairly risky and difficult to put them on. Uh, yeah. uh, and you also had to have capital in the right places. Right. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure, and, and like uh, at various points uh, during, uh, during that like day or two period, uh, blockchain transfers were taking forever, uh, especially for Bitcoin. It was taking like six hours or something. Mm. Um, uh, and like, so if I didn't have capital on uh, like Huobi uh, right. and, and I needed to, uh, to trade on Huobi in order to execute one of these great trades, I just couldn't do it really. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, like, honestly, one of the biggest things Alameda was uh, scrambling with was where do we put capital? Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's going to take forever to transfer it. Uh, and yeah, basically just like all the trade, all the best trades were shifting all the time uh, and trying to figure out which ones were the best was like a, a, a really complicated process. Yeah. Uh, and like Alameda puts on leverage positions too. Uh, and mm. uh, we were uh, at various points uh, flirting with disaster uh, in terms of that, uh, just because it was impossible not to be. Um, flirting with disaster means what? Uh, like getting Ex existential. Oh, not existential. Uh, certainly oh. not existential. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, said I, for disaster is a okay. So, oh, yeah, by disaster, I meant like uh, some of our positions were getting close to being liquidated. <laughs> ah, got it. Okay, 
Just checking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah. you you because like you are uh, mostly delta neutral, it's not an a question of saving because there are many firms that day that are trying to save the firm. But for you, it's an opportunity to make money because going into that day, it's delta neutral. Is that basically correct? Uh, yeah, that's uh, cl uh, closer to what, what was going on. Uh, yeah, right. a ton of opportunities and we were just trying so you to say, make So get in here now because we can, it's not getting here now because the, the office is metaphorically on fire. It's getting here now because we could make, uh, you know, make our quarter in just a day, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, different, awesome. um, like, the different traders at Alameda have different strengths. Uh, yeah. Like some people focus uh, entirely on modeling. Uh, some people uh, focus uh, much more on like the gaming aspects of trading, uh, like the fast decision-making mm -hmm. parts, like risk management, things like that. Yeah. Uh, I, fo I, I focus mostly on the latter. Um, and days you like- You focus on risk, risk management and what else? Or like fast decision-making, uh, figuring oh, fast out- fast decision-making, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, responding to like big market moves quickly. Sure. Uh, so like you're you're it. in your element. This is your yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. So that was, was that kind yeah, of your attitude going in? Like my time, this is my day. <laughs> yeah, I, I love days like that. Um, yeah. When yeah, when things are moving a lot. Like I've really liked the past week, for instance. <laughs> so you you uh, with, you really thrive on stress then, or it's just a it's a or or have you? Uh, is your mindset your mindset is really this is a game and I can win this game and it's it's. It's it's you stress. It's not. It's it's right. it's the positive side of stress. How how do you get in that flow on a day like that? And then how do yeah. you keep yourself from tipping over into too much adrenaline or too much whatever? Yeah. Um, so I've just sort of always been like that. I've always been hyper competitive. Um, if you put me in a situation where like it's a, something, but stress that I can is win. different from hyper. A lot of hyper competitive people that can't handle. That can't necessarily handle extreme stress. Yeah, there are different sure. types um, of hyper competitiveness. There are yeah, grinders, uh, and then there are people who thrive when there's two minutes on the clock. Like Eli yeah. Manning. I don't. I know you don't really like sports, but like Eli Manning, you know, if it's not he plays like crap unless it's like the Super Bowl with two minutes left. I don't yep. understand it, but some people they that's their time. Yep. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've always enjoy, uh, like, uh, enjoyed the, like the competitive things. Uh, and so I sort of figured like, I, I didn't know going in that I'd be a uh, great, good under stress, uh, in situations mm -hmm. like that too. Uh, but, uh, I, it turns out that I'm also like, just fairly, like, I'm quite overconfident about a lot of things. Uh, and sometimes that leads me to be wrong about stuff. Uh, mm. but, uh, like the over, like being overconfident and also hyper -com competitive just leads mm. me to think, Oh, like, like I can just do this. Like, that's fine. Um, mm. sort of not ignore stress, but, uh, yeah, like I, in the moment I can rise above it fairly easily, uh, just because I believe, mm. uh, like, I, I just think highly of my ability to, uh, do, to like execute, uh, regardless. Uh, and so you come in, I, I'm really interested in how you approach the that you get the call, you're coming in to work and what are you thinking on your way? I'm, I'm just so interested in how. It, it plays out in your head. You're, you're coming in, yeah. you're thinking, are you already thinking your first move? Do you need to get to the office and, and, and look at the data or are you already thinking where your first moves are going to be? Like, how does that work? Right. Uh, so I started reading Slack. Uh, we have a lot of updates on Slack yeah. typically. Um, it, like people weren't updating it that frequently on March 12th uh, just because like people so were more, yeah, it was more like screaming at each other uh, than like mm. taking time to write Slack messages. Um, but yeah, so I was, uh, oh, let me see. I think I went on to Twitter, uh, was trying to understand exactly what was going on. Um, uh, I was thinking like, so in the days leading up to March 12th, mm -hmm. uh, when the, is when Bitcoin had first developed its beta mm -hmm. to the S&P 500, uh, before yeah. that it had none. Uh, so I remember that on the, uh, when I was coming in, I, I was looking into what the S&P 500 had been doing. Um, if there were any other products uh, that yeah. it, it looked like might have been moving with more strongly uh, than, uh, than the S&P 500 specifically. Um, and yeah, I remember that I looked up whether any exchanges had mm -hmm. uh, had anything really insane happen because uh, uh, it seemed like there was some propensity for it and it did end up happening uh, like within the day uh, that BitMEX had some fairly extreme behavior that we can mm. probably discuss uh, as well. I think it's mm -hmm. fairly interesting. Coinbase, um, another one. 
I don't oh, remember yeah, yeah. on March 12th, but Coinbase, we always know, has Coinbase yeah. <laughs> going to be Coinbase. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, I, I can't remember any other specific things I was looking into. Uh, I think I was uh, also, I spent a little bit of time sort of just uh, thinking about like, oh, like, what are the chances crypto actually does just go to zero right now? Because um, it felt like not impossible at that point. <laughs> mm. that, that's yeah, one thing I, that didn't cross my mind on that day. To me, it was... It was not about that. That was never, uh, you, you got all si- kinds of thoughts, but it, it never, never crossed my mind that it could be existential to the Bitcoin. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it wouldn't organically be. Uh, so like obviously- Oh, you mean is, just like a, like a flash crash? Yeah, so like obviously COVID <laughs> means that like the S&P 500 could go to zero, for instance. Like that's obviously not possible. Um, right, right, right. But uh, with, with, like, with an asset class like crypto, uh, there's mm-hmm. so much leverage uh, in this space. Right. Uh, so you could have had a flash crash down to even potentially an, an even more extreme level. You, that, yeah. that if you map out the possibilities, that is a, a possibility of something that could have happened. That makes sense. Yeah, I think literal zero not only was a possibility, I think would have happened if BitMEX had not uh, gone down, uh, most likely. Um, really? It, or at least it would have likely printed very close to zero on BitMEX specifically. Just like printed, uh, printed a couple trades at three or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the reason that would have happened. Uh, printed a Bitcoin uh, at three before it bounced back up, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So BitMEX. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, uh, BitMEX uh, is like sort of known as like a, uh, uh, a place with a ton of liquidations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a polite way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. on March 12th, uh, that was where the most liquidations were happening. Uh, like, mm. uh, like as Bitcoin kept going down, uh, like for like whatever, like natural reasons or something uh, because, of, because of like the uh, beta to the market or spoos or like people de-risking or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so like the price goes down. Uh, people who are levered long get liquidated, mm-hmm. uh, cause the price to keep going down more. Uh, and if, uh, if more, uh, if, if the liquidations force the price to go down by, uh, by like enough such that more liquidations happen, and in particular more liquidations- Yeah, it can be a cascade. Cost, yeah, it'll cause a cascade. And that's what yeah. happened on BitMEX. Uh, when BitMEX yeah. went down, uh, they had a ton of unresolved selling liquidations. Uh, mm-hmm. And they don't do market orders exactly. Uh, they, uh, they have giant limits, uh, like limit sales that step down uh, mm-hmm. over, over time. Uh, and you get to see these giant orders stepping down, not getting filled because no one was buying, mm. uh, because no one had any capital left there, because it had all mm. gotten liquidated, and <laughs> six hours was the blockchain time. Um, mm. And so these were just impossible to fill. And had they kept stepping down, it like probably would have just gone essentially to zero. Mm. Um, and yeah, so then the next the buy of the century. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, it certainly would have been. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes it go down. Uh, like a lot of people speculate that it was on purpose. Uh, I, that's not for me to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a topic in and of itself, and I'm not sure we have the data. <laughs> yeah, uh, they Only our suspicions. <laughs> so, but, yeah, lo- ton of ton of huge trading opportunities that day. Uh, yeah. And- so how did you how did you I, I would love to just know what went through your mind that day, actually, just like this, the, you're playing a game. So what are, yeah. and, and, and uh, there are a lot of rules we don't know. There are some rules we know with this new extreme level of the game that's just been unlocked. And, and yeah. so, so tell me, tell me more. I just want to know more. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So in general, uh, I would describe uh, a few of our goals. Uh, like, so I mentioned that we like, we're trying to allocate capital optimally, yeah. try and figure out the best like short-term trades were uh like one other thing we were trying to do uh was like try and like on march 12th we definitely were trying to make uh delta bets uh, on uh, longer time scales than a few seconds um mm-hmm. so uh, does that mean that you were trying to avo- also does that also mean that the negative of that you were or contrapositive or whatever you were also trying to avoid uh, th- uh trades that that were several seconds in span you in in in, in you're trying to you're trying to push your time horizon out oh or uh, sure. I'm not exactly uh like we oh, didn't turn like our, so our bots that that are doing the seconds time scale yeah stuff, we so you you kept them on yeah we kept them on oh uh, but okay, we were all, okay and uh, in addition to that uh we were uh we 
like th there were various, uh, we, we felt there were various uh, indicators uh, that were atypical uh, that sort of told you that it was like quite likely that uh, uh, that like, for instance, Bitcoin is going to go up uh, fairly soon uh, or like some other, some like specific altcoins or whatever are going to go up or down. Uh, so really can you um, talk more about those indicators or, or no? Yeah, I, yeah, no, I can. Um, so is that like some RSI stuff or what, is, what kind of indicators are we talking about? Uh, so it was pretty idiosyncratic. Uh, so for instance, like there were just a ton of weird things happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so for instance, uh, like when BitMEX went down, uh, yes. we just like, uh, like just think sort of thinking through what happens when that, like uh, when BitMEX goes down, given the, the situation, mm -hmm. uh, because the like, BitMEX was driving the market down on some level. Uh, when BitMEX right. would have a liquidation down, uh, the other markets wouldn't, wouldn't move all the way down with it, but they would go down. Uh, and mm. so Bit BitMEX going down, uh, like we knew fairly, like fairly instantly, uh, like our bots, uh, our bots uh, don't react well when an exchange goes down. Uh, and okay. so we like, so we knew from, uh, from what our bots were doing, uh, that BitMEX was down. Uh, and so like we had like maybe a few seconds or a minute or something to figure out, okay, well, what do we do now? Mm. Uh, and one of the things we had to do uh, was get super long uh, because we figured, oh, like now BitMEX is down. There's no longer this source of uh, inorganic sales that are going to happen. The okay. other exchanges will probably go up too. Uh, and uh, yeah, that did happen. Uh, uh, Fascinating. Like, yeah. So like, th and things like that, uh, th that's a sort of extreme version. Uh, I think that was the most extreme prediction that, that it was possible to make. Yeah. Uh, uh, on that day, how do you uh, just decide how to size that trade though? Because the logic right. makes sense. I mean, we know with hindsight that it made sense. The logic yep. makes sense. Like, I, yep. I believe this, right? Even if I don't have the hindsight knowledge, I believe this, it makes sense. But you're right. also dealing with, I think you said on Twitter, it was a one every out of every 2000 type of day. So how do you size a trade like that when, when it, it probably makes sense? And I don't know how you would put a probability on that, but you can, you can tell us. But you also know that shit's weird. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not something that's based on, like, historical precedent or anything exactly, like that. Exactly, right. So what do you do? Yeah, it's, it's entirely trader intuition. Um, or uh, not entirely. So there's a few, a few considerations. Uh, one... Uh, uh, when like when deciding how to size any bet, uh, like not just a weird one, uh, but like any bet, uh, we'll uh, one thing we consider is how much impact we expect the uh, how much size we're going to put on. Uh, so over the, the impact time. of the your trade itself on the market, because you guys are 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 a prime mover in the market, so you got to decide what impact you yourselves placing a trade will make. Is that your meaning? Yeah, uh, okay. and uh, in particular, like uh, in general, we. Uh, we sort of model uh, like putting uh, us putting a bet on as not having like a long-term impact on the market, but mm -hmm. it can have a short-term one, especially insofar as uh, like our execution costs go. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, uh, if I think that like buying like, it's like some really high number of Bitcoins, let's say like 5,000 over a few mm -hmm. minutes, let's say I think that will have a 2% impact short-term and a 40 BIP impact longer term. Uh, that right. means that I definitely shouldn't do it. Uh, because I'm just going to be spent, uh, like, I'm going to be buying, like, at a really elevated price. Right. Uh, and, yeah, so I just, like, generally should, ne like, should never do that. But that um, might not necessarily, in fact, it very likely would be irrelevant on March 12th. On March 12th, yes. Uh, so the uh, normal impact numbers uh, right. would be uh, quite small relative to the sort of edge we thought we had. Right. Um, so it's uh, edge uh, relative to impact. But on March 12th, impact basically became... I mean, it wouldn't even be a consideration, would it? It's irrelevant. Uh, like, norm, uh, like, normal levels of impact wouldn't. Uh, it turned out that uh, uh, liquidity was also just quite low on March 12th. Uh, uh, right, 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 right. Okay. Back to being a yeah. bit of a concern. Uh, but I agree that it still was, like, much less of a concern than usual. Mm. Um, uh, but, I mean, we still had to think about, like, oh, like, uh, if we, like, if we just sort of, like, buy really fast, uh, how... Uh, like we are just going to dislodge the market on some level, uh, mm. like, uh, and we, or it, it, you would, if you didn't, if you weren't careful about which exchanges you did it on, uh, yeah. some exchanges uh, suffered le uh, less uh, in the liquidity department than others. Uh, and yeah, so we made some like fast choices about that too. Um, uh, and that's the sort of thing we uh, had been, uh, so like throughout the day, 
mm -hmm. uh, we do, these decisions are going to come up. Uh, we're yeah. going to have to, like, we're going to, there are going to be points where we want to put on huge deltas really fast uh, yes. in some direction. Uh, and so we, like, we're, we formed, like, theoretical strategies, like, oh, like, if we wanted to do this, which exchanges would we, would we do it on? Uh, like, and we, like, set, made, uh, made sure to cap, like, put capital on those places, uh, make sure that we had bots set up to help us do it. Uh, if we want, like, if we decided we wanted to do it in a second, uh, we, like, mm -hmm. made it so we could. Um, and... Yeah, so I'd say that that's another thing we spent a lot of time doing. Uh, like, yes, we were looking for the opportunities, but we were also uh, figuring out what was going to be the most likely thing to happen uh, and make sure we were set up to, to maximize when, that when it did happen. Um, so what was the, the most important decision you made on, on that day? Sure. Um, that, uh, like the BitMEX thing might have been the most important. Um, uh, or Alameda on that day. You yourself or Alameda. What were yeah. what, one, one or two of the, the key moments? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of boring, uh, but I think that uh, there were a few, a few times where we just made like really good choices about where to send capital. Mm. Um, and so nuts and bolts are really crucial on a day like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, like when you only have one or two opportunities to make the choice because of how long uh, transfers yeah. were taking, um, yeah, it like, if you make the wrong choice, it can be extremely costly. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it turns out that like, we made some good guesses about, uh, where liquidity was going to be. Can you, can uh, you, can you talk more specifically about that or, or no? It's okay. Uh, if I, you can't. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind doing it. I actually just kind of forget. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to say It's interesting because on a day like that, you also have to start considering counterparty risk. And I mean, yes. you know, it, it's not out of the question that a big exchange uh, could, uh, I mean, anything, on a day like that, literally anything can happen. People can disappear yeah. on a day like that. I mean, when oh, yeah. I say disappear, I mean, I mean their business is done. And, right. and uh, we saw that that happened with some small and medium-sized actor, but it could have been a big exchange. Could, oh, could have I mean, been. Uh, or yeah, anybody. So like, yeah, so, what, uh, so yeah. Uh, when Alameda thinks about like what its overall like Delta is or crypto exposure or whatever, mm -hmm. Like we're like we're like look at what our, all of our positions are on every exchange uh, and like compare them against each other and like add them up. Yeah. Uh, when Bitmex went down, we weren't sure what our delta was anymore uh, because mm. we weren't sure if Bitmex was going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you like, mean we like come back, come back, like yeah, like ever. oh, like we thought, we thought maybe <laughs> they're gone, maybe our capital there is like marked to zero. Uh, and yeah, yeah, so that, that actually does make it unclear what our like like yeah. yes, like maybe so this is fog of war stuff really. I mean, I don't mean to, you should always be careful about, but it's, it's intellectually, it's, it's like that. You have just massive pockets of information. You, you just don't know anything or it's very hazy. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, like, like I said, uh, like the practicing making de uh, decisions uh, when you, uh, when you don't know exactly what's going on uh, is something that's super important for becoming good at quant trading. Uh, and mm. like, obviously none of us had experience with it, with a situation like this, uh, but we did have experience making decisions, uh, making decisions under huge uncertainty with huge stakes uh, and like not panicking sure. and not like, crumbling under it. Sure. And yeah, it was actually super cool to see, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, I think, I think we're, we're, uh, we're out of time, but I, I really enjoyed this. There were so many good things that we didn't get to because yeah. it was so fun to get deeper with some of these topics. And if you, wanna, so, if you have some fast questions, I can, I can try and uh, get through them, but. Yeah, do you wanna do speed round? Yeah, sure. Uh, if, this is a quote from you on Twitter. If you told me three months ago how much time Alameda would be spending on DeFi, I wouldn't have believed you. Give us, tell us quickly about that. Uh, I mean, that's not really a speed round, is it? That's more like a 15 yeah. minute. <laughs> uh, over the past, uh, over the past few months, uh, there are times when uh, like 80% of trader time is spent thinking about DeFi, uh, like thinking about our DeFi models, uh, like literally yield farming, things like that. Uh, and like maybe six months ago, I just like thought that DeFi was like a niche thing that we would probably just never spend much time on. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I was just fairly surprised. Uh, I think I said that in reference to not wanting to make predictions about the future. You did, yeah. Uh, I left that part. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and 
yeah, so like it, it, it just sort of speaks to how unpredictable crypto is. What does the tech stack at Alameda look like? Uh, it uh, changes a lot uh, on a given day, depending on what we're doing. Uh, right, like the sort of things we're working on right now are like uh, new exchange implementations, uh, building new bots, uh, and and improving our latency. You mentioned that the biggest difference between traditional trading and crypto trading is tail risk. How to handle it? Any specifics? Uh, sure. Uh, like we mentioned, uh, like the sort of tails that exists on a day like March twelfth. Uh, like you have to worry a lot about margin and getting liquidated, which you just sort of don't in traditional finance. Um, and there's a lot more counterparty risk, uh, like you mentioned, uh, like that sort of doesn't exist uh, in traditional finance. Uh, and these are just all like uh, big risks uh, that, uh, that will impact the EV of, of all your trades uh, and are just different than the, than the sorts of things that uh, people tend to be familiar with. What might we not know about hedging and leverage, that, that's super important. Uh, sure, uh, so leverage, um, uh, I would say that uh, because of how volatile crypto is, uh, people tend to underestimate their chance of getting liquidated uh, by putting on fairly high, le high leverage positions. Um, and uh, it tends to make a lot of people's uh, trading strategies uh, a decent amount worse than I think they think they are. Uh, and yeah, that's one thing that uh, I think more people would benefit from knowing. Uh, hedging, um, uh, yeah, I would say that hedging uh, is maybe a bit overrated uh, insofar as, uh, or at least uh, from a quant trading uh, firm's perspective, mm -hmm. because we're going to be making thousands of these bets uh, and hedging every single one. Uh, like hedging tends to have some costs associated with it uh, because if you like every time you put on you put on a, like a, a positive EV trade and then like and then hedge it, uh, it's gonna either going to the hedge is going to be either zero or negative EV, uh, and so like over time these costs will add up. Uh, but if you're going to make thousands of these bets, uh, then uh, having this hedge is a will... poker story about expected uh, value. Uh, yeah, it's analogous to poker. Uh, like if you're going to make thousands of yeah, uh, me, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, when you play thousands of hands in poker, uh, like you're going to if you're good, then you, on average you'll have won. The same is mm -hmm. true of trading. I make thousands of trades. Uh, if I'm good at trading, they'll on average be good. So it's not super important to hedge all of them uh, because like the, the wins and losses that you get from not having hedged will balance out. Uh, sometimes it's important, to hedge, but not always. What are some operational wins uh, such as taking advantage of the J Japan premium? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so I would say that uh, one uh, big uh, source of uh, Alameda's, uh, like of Alameda's wins in the past uh, has been our willingness to uh, to put in a ton of a ton of work at like te terrible operational tasks that most people wouldn't. Mm, uh, yeah, so like the, the Japan ARB is like one good example. Uh, it sort of involves uh, like making a bunch of uh, like of like making a series of bank accounts mm. uh, in various countries. Uh, like having someone uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, in mm. Japan or like in some other place uh, who like go to the bank first thing in the morning every day uh, and then. Uh, like like convinced banks to let you in early, for instance, uh, it's uh, something you have to do in order to execute this, um, Fascinating. Uh, this cycle faster. And it's just something okay. that Alameda has always been willing to do that other people aren't. Uh, there are less extreme examples. Um, uh, like we'll often be willing to uh, like spend a lot of time uh, like uh, like literally just sending manual transfers around to places uh, that like take forever and like involve like terrible blockchains that are like fairly <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that we like. We just see the value in doing, and we don't see ourselves as being above. Amazing, I love it. And 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 finally, uh, how uh, someone wanted to know uh, what methods for deciding whether to proceed with a particular strategy besides the obvious backtesting. All uh, right. Um, so I would say that uh, one thing that we do fairly often, actually, uh, is like we spend a lot of time. Like we'll, t we'll typically backtest stuff, and but we'll mm -hmm. all spend a lot of time deciding, do we care about this backtest? Hmm. Um, uh, so often, especially in crypto trading, uh, there, there'll just be these idiosyncratic uh, like uh, market shifts uh, that maybe, uh, like maybe if I'm spending all day watching uh, the, the markets, uh, I sort of just like know, oh, like this is a day when gold is gonna be better than the S&P as a, as a mm -hmm. Bitcoin leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and, Maybe that's only happened once ever before. 
And so it's just going to be impossible for backtests to reveal it. Uh, mm. But we find that these intuitions are just often right. Uh, and yeah, so like we've done it enough. Huh. Uh, like we've done enough of these things. We, sp we spent enough time watching the markets that we just sort of un understand what kinds of intuitions we can trust. Uh, and uh, like often we're just going to be willing to trust those intuitions over even something that, that a backtest says. Fascinating. So there's a lot more qualitative to being a quantitative trader than one might think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, there are quantitative elements to it. Um, mm -mm. Like of course, uh, of course. It's sort of like a, your ability to interpret the, the numbers that you're seeing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I would say that like having quali qualitative understanding of the markets is like super important even for quant traders. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Sam Trabuco from Alameda Research. And this has just really been so fascinating. So I really want to thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Amazing. So this has been the Feedback Loop with Sino Global Capital. I'm Matthew Graham. And thanks again, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice day.